Okay, we're on. Okay, we're on the air? Yeah, we're on the air. What do you have to say? Well, it's hot today here in the beautiful south of France. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of flies. I would like to uh, play some of my dance band 78s today. Is that okay, John? Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, your dance band 78s. So what do you think of that, Eden? <coughs> oh, sorry, I was, I was asleep. Oh. <laughs> what okay. do you think of that, Eden? Sounds jazzy. You're so beautiful. Let's do it. <laughs> That's good. Let's I'm kind of nervous that you're going to be bored and get up and leave. <laughs> we hope you like his I'll records. I'll stay here just to make fun of you guys. So, what do you, uh, what do you think of old records, Eden? I think you're preserving an important part of history. Nah, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Thank, I was about to thank you very much for that comment. It's true. Mm. Well, you guys, you guys buy them. Okay. Spend a lot of money. Yeah. Spend a lot of time. Right. But you enjoy them. You listen to them. I enjoy you don't fussing just over our nail them on the wall. Right. Listen to them and and you know trade discographical information about them. Yeah. And you're like little kids when you get them. You should see John's face light up. Oh yeah, me too. I get all so excited and I'm trembling yes. when I'm <laughs> opening those boxes of records John that come in the too. mail. Yeah. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. E plus, E plus. Oh boy, look at that. It's mine. It's in my hands now. I have it in my clutches. It's good. It's good to get excited about something. I guess. A guy's entitled to a hobby, I think. Yeah, that's right. Come on. Um, so for those of you listening, this is uh, John's Old Time Radio Show. Woot woot. Listening to us either at eastriverstringband.com, iTunes, or on Jalopy Radio. I'm here with our special guest, Robert Crum, or in his record room. And, and of course, uh, the lovely Eden Brower has many, many uh, interesting things to say <laughs> about these records. <laughs> Although sometimes in a mocking fashion, I'm sure deep down she doesn't really mean it. <coughs> Cute little smart ass that she is. Yeah. <laughs> this is a sausage fest. You need me here. Thank God she's cute. Right. <laughs> so okay. what are you, you going to play for us first? All right, let's start out with Smile When the Raindrops Fall by Lou Reynolds and his Flexo Recording Orchestra. Wow. Circa 1930. So this is off one of those Flexo discs. Yeah, that's right. Cool. What's a what's flexo disc? Uh, flexo disc is one of these. Um, is it flexo? Yeah, it's flexible. here. I'll show you one, Eden. Here's a flexo record. See, it's flexible. Oh yeah, jeez. Oh. That's cool. The it's maker like, had a secret formula which he did not reveal to anyone. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's like a Fisher Price record. <laughs> and sometimes they warp over decades, but. So it's hard to find ones that aren't warped. Hmm. So it's not shellac. The company was in San Francisco and lasted, I don't know, a few years. But they but made some great records of local bands from San Francisco area that in Oakland that would not have otherwise recorded.
Wow, that was great, huh? Great, huh? So that's just a generic San Francisco dance band. There was probably hundreds like that. Yeah, from Oakland, actually. From Oakland? Yeah. Now, where'd you find that record? Found it at the Alameda Flea Market in Oakland. Oh, you did? Yeah. Huh. But a guy like me is not going to find any of those now, right? Those are really rare. Terry Zweigoff in the 80s, very enterprising. He got fascinated by the Flexo company. He went out and pursued Flexo records and became the king of the Flexos. He had the best <laughs> collection of anybody. Really? And then he went down and ran down some of the musicians. Huh. He found Lou Reynolds, who was the leader of this, the band that just played that Smile on the Raindrops Fall. He found the guy who's still living in Oakland. No kidding. The guy was in his 80s. And, and Terry started asking him questions about his band, and he said, I've been out of the music business so long, I just I don't remember. I don't remember anything. <laughs> you have nothing to say about it. Really? That's <laughs> yeah, funny. funny. Unbelievable. Let's hear another Lou Reynolds record. Okay. He does a great version of a tune called What a Fool I've Been. Tune, huh? Great, huh? Yeah, really, really nice. What a fool I've been. Yeah. Lou Reynolds Flexo Recording Orchestra. Can I get a photo of that one? Yes, you may. It's a. We're looking at a 
a green flexible <laughs> record here that's about eight inches in diameter. I wish, wish I could find some of those. Man. They're, they're pretty rare. Yeah. Also, Flexo, the guy, Warner, that ran it, he had one a kind of a vanity operation going. He would let anybody come in and make a record. So in San Francisco, you used to be able to find in antique stores these real amateurs on the Flexo label, like huh. singers and stuff that are really bad, or just a bunch of people clowning around. Really? Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Along with these great dance orchestras. So for people out there who don't know what like a dance orchestra was, uh, what can you tell them about uh, dance orchestras? Who well, were these records put out for? People used to dance. They used to dance. That's and right. they would go out dancing before they had TV and stuff. They had dance halls, right? What do, what do you mean before they had TV? <laughs> <laughs> well, TV came I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> these records were for rich upper crust people, right? No. To buy it? No. Yeah, middle class and you know, even poor people bought records. Yeah. Even though they were really a luxury item, they were expensive. Extremely expensive. But they figured out a way to market these to, to really working class and poor people yeah. as well as I'm sure most, you know, wealthy people had a Victrola. Mm -hmm. And wealthy people in those days tended to collect classical records yeah, more exactly. than anything else. Yeah, this would have been too like uh yeah. Com working class, on borderline, I guess. Some wealthy people, particularly more like younger and sophisticated wealthy, you know, college students and stuff, they, they bought dance band and jazz records also. Yeah, younger but kids probably. So they would go to see the band and they would already know who they are? And Generally, it's the other way around. I, except for a few really well-known, nationally known bands like Paul Whiteman or Red Nichols, mostly people went out locally to hear local bands and most of those bands didn't even record. Yeah, I think people just, I mean, unless I'm wrong, I think people went out to go dancing yeah, and the band right. was like so secondary. Of secondary importance, yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, and all the bands played the hit songs of the day. There's this so sheet music for everything. Exactly, yeah. right. I mean, these bands weren't writing their own tunes. Yeah. No. Um, you know, sometimes they were playing they, the popular songs. Sometimes they would, like, tweak the arrangements, you know. They, oh, they yeah. would buy a stock arrangement for an orchestra and then they would kind of doctor it up to suit themselves. Yeah, I mean the great bands had the best arrangements. Yeah, they had arrangers of their own, the, the top bands. Right, had right. Their own arrangers. But these, this music was just for people to uh, be entertained by on the weekends and mostly for, for dancing. You know? Yeah. And these bands make money. And there were thousands and thousands yeah. of them. They, made thousands thousands of them. Yeah, they didn't make much money, no. It was I mean, hard work and there wasn't a lot, a lot of money in yeah. for most of them. Yeah. Was a, you know. I mean, being a musician was always probably the in, the worst job you could have, you know. But <laughs> but it was a job. I mean, you know, the, a lot of these bands, that's probably all they did was play in those bands, right? Well, before the Depression hit. Before the Depression. There were yeah. so many venues. There was dance halls. There were theaters. There were restaurants. There was... So the, any musician worth, you know, who could play competently had all the work that they could handle. Some guys played in two bands at the same time. Sure. They'd run from one job to the other. There was so many live music venues at that time before the Depression. The Depression kind of started to kill it. And, and then, the you know, radio and TV kind of finished it off. Yeah, once you had radio, you people found a lot of entertainment just at home, right? Yeah. yeah. And then the musicians union didn't help either. In the 30s, it was kind of run by gangsters, and they, they started demanding that any that venues had to, like, 
pay a certain level of wages and they had to hire a certain number of musicians and they had to, you know, that was, and in the Depression, these places couldn't afford it, so. Gangsters. Kind of died. But people went out dancing is the main thing. Yeah. You know, that, was, that was a form of entertainment for middle class and even lower class people went out. Sometimes, you know, several nights a week they go out dancing because the places, dance halls like Roseland in New York was quite cheap to get in, you know. Right. And, and some, sometimes there'd be like a, a little bit of a restaurant service involved, you know, like Young's Chinese restaurant in Times Square. For some reason, these Chinese restaurants were often com com combined with dance halls hmm. much, all over America. Not sure why that is. Interesting. Yes, there are cheap Chinese food and, and dancing. There's still a very old uh, restaurant in Chinatown in New York that looks like an old dance hall. I bet you it probably was. Yeah. It's, it's one of, they say it's one of the oldest restaurants. I have. Which I one? I ate there once years ago, but huh. you walk in... And it's like these giant staircases that go up to this balcony oh. where you eat, and then the whole bottom looks like it could have been dance a dance floor. floor. Yeah. Dance floor. Bet you that's what they Probably did. Probably was, yeah. yeah. What's it called? You know? ah, I can't remember. It was years oh. ago. It's really good. Hmm. It's one of those places where they bring the food around in carts. You just point huh. at what you want. And they, yeah, yeah. Still, still going. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I want to play another uh, West Coast band that recorded on a very small label in San Francisco called... Uh, it's called McGregor and Ingram label. Hmm. Okay, the cool. Polly Watson band. And what's this song called? What's it called? I had to lose you. I think it's called. These, there's no vocals in these. Oh, sometimes there is. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean that, that last one didn't have vocals, but I think the the first one he played had a vocal, right? Did it? There's usually a singer in it. No, it didn't. Oh, yeah. it didn't. Those didn't have vocals. Okay. But you, generally they have vocals, but yeah. I don't think this one has a vocal either. I had to lose you. They could just name it anything, really. It's no vocal. Yeah, but generally, I think they were they were trying to sell the the record by the song, so it's usually the the right song title. Yeah, often like those cheaper dime store labels didn't even use the names of the bands. They would just call it some generic name like the Majestic Dance Orchestra, which could have been anybody. It could have been. Uh, Adrian Schubert or Sam Lannan or Lou Gold or any of those guys. It, they didn't. It didn't matter who the band was. Yeah, was, yeah. They were selling them by the on the merit of the songs. Yeah, they were pushing songs. Thank you. 
with a cymbal crash. So who was that again? That was the Polly Watson band. Yeah, picture of that one, that label. But Polly Watson's a man. Oh. <laughs> His label's kind of kind of wrecked. Yeah, it's kind of hard to see. One of his old musicians told Terry that the Polly Watson band was from Stockton, California. Oh, yeah? Which is not a very big town. Huh. It's a small town, but it's a great band, and, you know, top-notch. Well, you could just imagine how many of these bands there were throughout the country, right? I mean, it's just, it's kind of, you, you can't really comprehend how many bands there were and, you know, a lot of bad ones, I'm sure, but a lot of really, really great we ones. We just never also. know. I mean, there's yeah. all these photos that turn up of bands that never recorded, hundreds and hundreds of bands, you know, eight and ten piece orchestras. And those are the ones that were photographed. That's right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the photos that have been found. Yeah. Right, right. So it's it's incredible. Yeah. It's really incredible when you think about it. it was like a lost civilization or something. Yeah, and it's it's, <laughs> it's kind of mind blowing to think of how what a common thing it was up to like the 1930s to be a musician in a band like this, and then it's just all gone. It just kind of petered out through the 40s and 50s. Even when I was a kid in the 50s, every high school in America still had, you know, an aspiring dance orchestra like that. Mm -hmm. When I went to Milford High School, they had a, the band leader would, you know, teach a uh, marching band, but also had like a dance band with teenage kids in it playing trumpets and clarinets and trombones. Oh, really? You had like a high school dance band that yeah, played popular right. music? Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, we never had that. It, was, it wasn't we very had, like, interesting. concert bands and jazz band. I played in the jazz band, but we didn't do, you know, it might Popular have been over music. by the time you, because you're younger than me, it might have yeah, been over yeah. by then, I don't know. No, it was, yeah. We had a jazz band, at least. Yeah, I mean, I, they still have those, I know, you know, but the music we played for the most part was, you know, just these terrible arrangements of these songs that weren't even really jazz right. songs. And then every once in a while you'd play an actual jazz song, it was all an equally bad arrangement, but yeah. we weren't playing anything close to what we're listening to right now. But I mean, the sound of those dance bands, to me, it it's loses interest as the depression goes on. By like 1932, 33, there's not much 
being recorded that's that still sounds great to my ear yeah and i don't care much for swing at all like benny goodman and Artie show and all that i'm not interested in that yeah, i don't know i'm not sure why yeah i like the earlier sound i don't know why always did yeah yeah more more rhythm right more i don't know what it is it's, it's a, the texture's something. different the whole s mood is different the mood is totally different yeah. too there's something really almost fake about the swing well, bands mechanical like a fake or something joy, you know so that's what it turned into swing music yeah swing band. yeah well they had and that, that's it kind of branched the, you had the sweet bands like guy lombardo and jan garber and ted weems on the one hand then you had these swing bands like benny goodman and artie shaw and, and of course you had black bands like jimmy lunsford and duke ellington at the same time and some people for them that's the golden age is that swing era of the late 30s for some fans but tell me about it almost every time i look through a collection or a list of old jazz records it's artie shaw and benny goodman yeah right? yeah look through a collection an old guy had of every artie shaw benny goodman records and he on some records he had five six copies of each record oh yeah and had all notes huh. on the side why well these people were collector huge fans of that yeah. stuff I mean, when i first started collecting 78s the other 78 collectors that i met this is like 1961 62 63 were almost entirely into that swing era and uh just the hot jazz of the earlier period louis armstrong duke ellington big spider beck and you know the the more the just those kind of dance bands like we just been listening to that was not that much interest in at all really yeah i mean most of the jazz collectors dismiss this this kind of music as just uh too pedestrian sweet or commercial yeah. and sometimes they they collect records if they knew they had some trumpeter player or clarinet player that was hot or like, god forbid there's a solo by one of those guys yeah red nickels or somebody right, and they, right. they keep it but but i i like the just the great tunes and just the sound of those bands i don't know what it is it's, yeah. to, to me it's really charming as hell what do you think eden you look disgusted i do yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not my favorite kind of old music but i, I like it <laughs> yeah. it's good I like I said, it reminds me of old cartoons. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's what's playing in my well, head I when I'm sure. listening to it. I think the Bugs people Bunny that are killing Hitler, you know? Yeah, I think the people that are attracted to it, that's what attracts them. <laughs> For me, growing up, I, I loved the music in old cartoons. When I first heard this music, it just hit me like, that that's it. That's the music that I... Yeah, me too. To. Yeah. Me too. And I was a kid hearing it, old cartoons and, and those little rascals and Laurel and Hardy. Of course, yeah. Blue Rose <laughs> Shield. <laughs> right yeah. <clears throat> let's listen to another west coast orchestra called the garden dancing palace orchestra oh, they're cool. from la i think the garden dancing palace was a some kind of lower class dance hall hmm. you know the garden dancing palace there was, every town had a place called that the dancing palace huh. <laughs> this is called when erastus plays his old kazoo <laughs> <laughs> oh good it's going to be some kazoo in this one.
see toys simply can't control your feet when Rastus plays his whole chasm. Though he plays in just one key, it's regular low-down symphony when Rastus plays his whole chasm. When he goes bo-do-de-o, 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 you can't help singing bo-do-de-o, bo-do-de-o, bo-do-de-o. Your ears are ringing, every operatic star throws away his whole darn repertoire. The Rastus plays his whole cousin. How could you not like that record? There wasn't quite enough kazoo. Well, there was kazoo in it. Uh, at least A little it was bit. Pretty good. Not enough kazoo for you? Could have used more kazoo. Very nice violin playing. It's too. old cat. What was the name of that band again? That was the Garden Dancing Palace Orchestra. Oh. They made two records, 1928 in L.A. I must have it. Yes, they're good. <laughs> not sure how rare those are. I don't know. Probably not terribly. You need a picture of that label. There's also a version of that song by Johnny Dodd's Black Bottom Stompers. Which yeah, I know I've heard Totally it cooks. But the Garden Dancing Palace Orchestra had its charms. So speaking of uh, Johnny Dodd's, why don't you play us uh, like a, a black dance orchestra? Okay. I'll Those are a, all West Coast. They're about the East Coast. I'll play a black dance orchestra that sounds totally white until toward the end when they start getting hot. Who's that? McKinney's? Leroy Smith and his orchestra. Oh, Leroy Smith. Yeah. You ever heard that band? Yeah. I'm picturing like a dance band, East Coast, West Coast, like battle. That's what you want to have a, a dance Fighting going dance on. Wait, wasn't that battle? a skit? I think that was a skit. <laughs> we used to have band battles. Sure. <coughs> like drive-bys, you know? But you also Your East Coast dance band, jazzer. We had territories in the dance band era. So there was Midwestern territories, like there was the Upper Midwest, which is like Chicago and then Minneapolis and uh, towns like that, Milwaukee. And then you had the Lower Midwest, Kansas City, St. Louis, uh, towns like that, and Texas. There was territories. And it, like, the Midwest was rich territory. Indiana, Illinois, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. So many great bands. And fortunately, because Jeanette was there, a lot of them got recorded. And Brunswick, Vocalion, and Victor did some recording of those bands also. But okay, let's hear Leroy so Smith. Before you play that, so what kind of what kind of battle would a would a dance orchestra have? <laughs> did band did bands really like Battle sure. each other. I know they had like dance contests and stuff. Not sure how that worked exactly, but two bands would be in in this in one place, like a, a big dance hall or ballroom, and then one band would play a tune. I'm not sure how it worked, and the other band would try and, and play hotter or something, and then the then the audience would decide which was better, oh, okay. which band was they liked better, which 
applause or something. I'm not sure exactly, but it was quite common in the in the 20s. These band battles. Yeah, it's an early American Idol. But Sometimes. all those competitions were popular, whether it was fiddle contests or yeah, you know, banjo banjo toss. <laughs> well, they <laughs> a banjo. Toss. Yeah, they had all competitions for you know various different places. I know I saw some ads, some old ads for Benny Nawahi. When he would play and have a Hawaiian guitar competition to see if anybody could beat him. Is that right? Really? Yeah, he called himself, you know, like he doesn't see his records, the king of Hawaiian guitar, yeah. The king of the Hawaiian guitar, and there was a prize if anybody could beat him. Yeah, is that right? Who would judge that? Well, who knows, but probably the audience. I don't know. I don't know. But (coughs) But I I can't imagine anyone ever beating him. No, (laughs) probably not, no. I mean, I don't see how you could beat him. I'm sure he was pretty confident he could, you know play the Hawaiian guitar better than anybody. Yeah, it was probably like, he probably had a deal where he gave his, uh, you know, the money he was going to get to play away if anybody beat him, that was the prize money, and it never happened. <laughs> right. But, yeah, it's, it's funny, it's when Armstrong and me went and down to L.A. and and went and visited Benny Nawahi when he was old. Yeah, you got to talk to him, right? You got to talk to him, and, and we'd try asking questions about, you know, the, the music and everything. He wasn't interested in talking about it. Says, oh, I quit so long ago, and you just want to talk about how he won some kind of prize swimming to Catalina <laughs> Island and back. Right? That was a big thing. He set like what? a world record in the 1940s, and he was blind. Yeah, what? It was in the newspapers and Wait, stuff. Wait, he wasn't like, blind when he played. No, no, no. He, he got later. some kind of eye condition. Was blind later, and he set the world record or something for swimming to Catalina Island and back. But you were you were, were you able to get any information? And I, I know you you told me you t- tried to talk to me about other bands, Waikiki, Stonewall Boys, stuff like that. Yeah, just miscellaneous just tidbits. Didn't, wasn't interested in talking about it. He had still had some old seventy eights. Yeah, did he have his own stuff? Or yeah, he had some old seventy eights of his own playing. Yeah, he had some of those those Grey Gull seventy eights and oh. a couple of the Columbias. And, but he, I don't know. He just wouldn't wasn't interested. Funny, his house was like perfectly preserved. It was a small, modest place. His wife was still with him. Perfectly preserved from 1948 when he had decorated it. Huh. They, they kept everything neat and orderly. So there was all this like late 40s knickknacks and funny like modernistic pictures and stuff on the wall. That's cool. And was he actually like down on music or just he just wasn't interested? He said, oh, son of a gun, it was so long ago. I stopped playing in 1940. I don't, you know. <laughs> I don't even remember any of that. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's amazing. One of the greatest Hawaiian guitar yeah, players I've right. ever played. Yeah. Just thought it was all a big <laughs> And he was very pleased time. that we were interested in him and, rem- and appreciated that he was a good musician. He liked that. He was happy about that. But didn't want to answer any questions. He just didn't, eh, didn't remember. Oh. Didn't remember. Just kept showing you that swimming medal. Yeah, he kept pulling out these newspaper clippings and stuff of it, how he won this championship. I've seen the clippings out of right. Yeah, you probably just couldn't see how far away it was. You never would have done it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he was a tough guy. Yeah. Okay. So what? Are, what are we gonna hear? Leroy Smith and his orchestra playing okay. the St. Louis Blues. Oh yes, I forgot. Yes, very good.
Yeah, somewhere at the end, like the field changes and gets like a little behind yeah. the beat, you know. Yeah, the beginning, it's very uh, on the beat, like the white bands. Yeah. Strange. Yeah, there was a lot of black dance orchestras like that that played, you know, very similar to the white bands. Yeah. But the record companies generally had this marketing scheme where they wanted black orchestras only to play hot jazz and, and market them to, you know, black audience so but there, there was tons of black bands playing popular music just like the white dance orchestra yeah right? apparently yeah. yeah from what black musicians have said to interviewers yeah, yeah, yeah lots of them and they I mean Andy Kirk was a popular black band leader in the 20s 30s and he said in his book uh, I think it was an autobiography he wrote that the record companies wouldn't let him record popular songs they only wanted him to record hot jazz stuff it's mm -hmm. funny, um, but, but yeah. and it was the same thing with they all the all sell. the black musicians. They thought it wouldn't sell. If well, they were trying to sell to a black audience. They didn't understand. They thought all they wanted to hear was blues and jazz. You know? Yeah, and hot, yeah, hot, hot dance tunes. You know, so they wouldn't let them record pop. It's the same tunes. thing with all the country. That uh, great. Blues musicians oh, and, and the hillbillies too. Yeah, hillbillies they, too. They like to play the hillbillies. Pop tunes. A lot of them wanted to play pop music, like Low Stokes, you know, Clayton McMitchin. Yeah. yeah, they all wanted to play pop music, and they're like, you, are you, "We brought you here to play fiddle music. What are you guys kidding?" They have these market they niches. Just, yeah, you know, the record companies. But you know, like um, I did this uh, talk with the guy um, where Don Kent used to work at that record store in Chicago. What's the guy's name? Bernie. Uh, uh, you know the guy. I know the guy. Mean you. Still, he still owns a famous record store there. Right. Anyways, I can't remember his name, but uh, Kessler. Guy. Yeah, Kessler. Kessler, Kessler or something Kessler. like that. Yeah. Kessler. That's it. And uh, and um, he was talking about how you know when he recorded people like uh, Big Joe Williams and uh, Sleepy John Estes in the late fifties and sixties. You know, they would like live in the store, let them stay in the basement. He said John Estes was staying with him for a long time, and he, he said Estes would come up every week when the new arrivals came out and take like 10 records down and learn all these new, you know, he's learning Johnny huh. Cash and learning pop tunes. John never, Estes? Yeah, never really? blues. Wow. He said he watched him do this for weeks and finally said, huh. John, you know what, why are you so interested in all this, you know, the pop music and the country music? Yeah. And he said, well... You know, if you're going to play a house party, you got to know the top five mm -hmm. pop tunes. You got to know the top yeah. five country. Right. And, you know, this whole list. And he goes, John, when was the last time you played a house party? He said, like, 25 years, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wow. That's kind of sad. <laughs> Jeez. But that's just what he did. You know, they, just like everybody else, you learn the, the, the tunes that tunes everybody wants to hear. You know? They must have enjoyed it, too. Yeah. No, I mean, clearly he did, especially at that point, because there was no reason to. But, I mean, it's just kind of funny that, but if you listen to John Estes, they made him record all the same style stuff. I mean, he, there was no way he recorded a pop or a country tune when he recorded, yeah. but I'm sure he knew him. I'm sure he played them. Yeah. Just like country <coughs> bands played blues, you know. There were a couple of black band leaders in Chicago, Dave Payton and Erskine Tate. Right. Payton actually had wrote a column, I think, for the Chicago Defender. He's constantly ranting and raving about this problem with black musicians not being able to get gigs playing popular music, dance bands, and, and it, you know, he was very strict about, you know, uh, the level of musicianship and that mu musicians should be able to read and, you know, and all that stuff. And his band only got to make one record, hmm. Dave Payton Orchestra. He was a prominent black musician in Chicago. 
and even that record is under the name Fess Williams. Oh, really? Huh. Fess Williams was fronting the band Dave Payton Orchestra in, Chi in Chicago for about a year before he went back to New York and, you know, took up where he left off with his own band. And what record was that? It's this one record. I I'll play it for you. It's called, uh, I don't remember the take title. Take note, John. Take note. Well, I'm taking note. Right down. <laughs> I'm recording this, too. So. Oh, yeah. I'm not it's jotting called, it down. It's called mm. Dixie Stomp. And it's oh. listed as by Fess Williams and his Joy Boys oh, yeah. on oh. Vocalion. It's about 1928, 29. It's great. That's got to be a tough one. Joy Boys. Joy Boys. It's a great name. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, gang. Hello, Fess. Smoking, smoking. They don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> uh, they sure don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dave Payton Orchestra under the name of Fess Williams and his Joy Boys. Wow, it's great. <coughs> so good. If you look at the microfilms of the Chicago Defender from that period, it's full of the names of black bands that never recorded. It's amazing. Really? Yeah. Just All over the place. <laughs> from obscure towns like, you know, McKeesport, Pennsylvania or someplace, you know. Black orchestras and jazz bands. I mean, I know that we're uh, lucky to have any of this stuff That's at right. all. That's right, yeah. It's just, uh, it's unbelievable to think of what wasn't recorded. Yep. And then like what you and I were talking about the other day, that when you really consider that, you know, these bands were in really stiff environments where they were uncomfortable playing at these recording sessions, we can and just In assume. recording studios, yeah. And you, can, and you hear how good the bands are. You can just imagine how much better they were live. Well, how are they trying to stick 15 people in the recording studio to record or oh, just the whole, yeah no i mean it's pretty amazing that I, I give the engineers who recorded these records for the most part a lot of credit i mean yeah. a, lot, a lot of the records don't sound great but i mean just listening to what we've been listening to on this show like you got to give these guys a lot of credit what they were doing with one microphone and basically using risers to get you know, separation or get the louder instruments off the mic, but right. not moving them too far back. I mean, the, the, some of these records couldn't be recorded any better than they are, so it's incredible. Yeah. But what I just meant is, you know, the bands come in, you know, I mean, any of these bands into a, a stiff environment. There's no audience. People aren't drinking. People aren't partying or people dancing. People aren't dancing. There's some white guy setting up a mic and telling them, go when that light comes on, and you better not, you know better be on time and you, know, you can just imagine how it was and also and they're uh, not even they're not arranged the musicians are not arranged how they normally would right. be on a stage there's no way they could place. be comfortable yeah so and uh, it's got to be a little bit stiff yeah and when you listen to what we're listening to I'm saying it's just you have to really think about what these bands were like when they were comfortable in their own environment and, and inspired by dancers if yeah. you ever played for dancing it's very inspiring to musicians to have crowd of people moving to your music that's yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. inspiring yeah. it makes you play better you play oh, stronger play more rhythmically and a lot of these songs you know probably on certain nights when the crowd was really into it they they went on forever and you know that what we're yeah, listening who knows? To, what we're listening to we now is the you know under three minute arrangement we'll never know we'll never know <laughs> but I, I could just guess well, you guys ever playing know. myself where you know you can tell when the crowd's into it with people and sometimes you just kind of keep going and extend the, somebody takes an extra solo or whatever i'm sure yeah. there's a lot of that going on there is the factor that in those days those musicians played so much music they played every night and they played so much that it's possible that they were so used to these style of music whatever that, that that they weren't too terribly hung up or inhibited by the recording studio situation you can hope you know well clearly i mean just listening to like that record i mean it, it sounds phenomenal yeah and you can't really imagine them sounding that much better but then again but we'll never know you no know? and and in in old movies and films of bands that you have i have records by sometimes the films are they're playing so much hotter it's unbelievable than than the records oh yeah, you know, yeah. it's incredible like the what's that band from LA uh, like in those Vitaphone films yes yeah, so yeah. sometimes they're incredibly so much better in the films than they are in, on the records and I can't I don't know what that's about I don't understand what why you, that would you can be. always speculate but it I, I bet you it's just simple stuff like when they went in the studio that 
they wanted specific tunes that maybe they weren't that comfortable playing, no, or or they know. told them not to, you know, play as hot for certain. I'm sure if you just think about music business now or any other business that we've right. talked about a million times, there's right. always somebody telling you what to mm-hmm. do who doesn't know what the yeah. hell they're talking about. Yeah, I think they so. The, especially the bigger companies would impose policies they had about dance tempos and stuff like that. Well, just, you know, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, but, you know, like you can hear, to me, like just a huge difference in Blind Willie McTell when he's recording for Columbia versus when he yeah. records for Vocalion. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the feel is just totally different. Like yeah. There was, to me, I mean, you could just say like, oh, he's in a different mood. Yeah, that could be it too. To me, there was just like that Columbia. He sounds a little stiffer and more. Uh, a lot of people like him better. They think he's like more focused. That seems to be true of a lot of blues musicians who record for Columbia. They seem stiffer and more inhibited than yeah than why, for the other labels. It's got to be the environment. Sure. I gotta go answer the phone. I'll be right back. They yeah. were stricter. They were. Well, we, we can only speculate, but I mean, I would imagine it's the uh, being in an uptight uptight environment you know it's like walking into this do this radio show yeah i can't relax yeah you look very uh <laughs> ill at ease very uptight is that robert's ringtone <laughs> that's that's the that's the <laughs> ringer for their home phone oh that's the home phone yeah. this band made one side of one record is this an indiana band i don't know where they're from I don't know anything about them it's paul kleinke and his orchestra mm. It's on Jeanette, so you know, it's recorded in Richmond. I gotta get a photo of that. Later. And it's called Jane. Jane. Okay. It's their only side. <laughs> I found this record at a secondhand shop in Sacramento. Thank you. 
Chain by Paul Kleinke Orchestra. Unbelievable. I must have it. <laughs> you will Never have it. it. Well, you might find it. It's only on Jeanette, it's not on Champion or any other subsidiary label. I will find it. <laughs> Have to have positive self-talk. The other side is another obscure band, the Howard Thomas and his original Cotton Pickers. Yeah, they like made several records, and some of them are really good. I don't have any of the really good ones by that Howard Thomas band. Well, <coughs> that's it. We've come to the end of another uh, old-time radio show. I yeah. want to thank our guest. I want to thank uh, Robert for having us. To My pleasure. His, uh, secret lair of uh, shellac discs. That uh, goes on forever. Yes. And Eden Brower for harassing us. And, uh, <laughs> for just sitting here. And just yeah. for sitting there looking so cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We thank you. Doop, doop, doop.